So, what you're listening to there is a song I put out back in episode 17 of Murder, Etc. That episode was called Greenville, We Have a Problem. And it was all about how Greenville had become the murder capital of South Carolina back in 1975. Now, if even if you don't remember the full episode, you probably will at least remember this part. The next thing I remember about him, he was t- had this motorhome, and he was telling me about making this sex machine. And he was going to sell it to the prisons. You heard that right. And I said, I don't know if we'll buy that, Ray. <laughs> a sex machine. Hamby planned to sell a sex machine to the women's prisons. So he had some kind of jigsaw. He made it and made a saddle like a horse saddle. <laughs> it had a penis on it and a jigsaw. You turn it on, it jig up and down. You know? <laughs> I still can't listen to that uh, without laughing. Uh, the night that I edited that, uh, I think my family thought I was going nuts because I was sitting in my office and just listening to that part over and over again. But anyway, it was somewhere about halfway through season one, I Start, I started using uh, a bunch of cold opens, which is what that is, like that first little anecdote at the beginning of the show, because it offered up a lot more opportunities for me uh, to tell stories um, within the podcast. So it also gave me a chance to sort of introduce myself uh, before the episode began, which is something that I wasn't actually doing when we started. Anyway, when I started thinking about that and I started listening back to it, I started thinking a lot about Leonard Brown because... You know, if you're listening now, you probably already recognize his voice. Uh, here's the thing about Leonard. Um, the man goes out to breakfast literally every day, and he eats at the same places, and every place he goes, somebody knows him, which is not a big surprise, I suppose. The first time I met him, um, I met him and his son, Leonard Jr., for breakfast, and we were in this loud diner, and Leonard Sr. hates wearing his hearing aids, and so sometimes he either speaks louder or softer, and regardless, I had a lot of questions I wanted to ask him. And he ended up, as you might expect, having a lot of stories. Um, at, at the end of it, I don't know how many hours we sat there, but we sat there for hours. And when we finally got ready to leave, he was in the middle of this sort of gruesome story about somebody killing somebody else. And I don't really remember all the particulars, but it was the story was amazing and shocking, just like most of Leonard's stories were. So we get up to leave and I realize there's these two South Carolina state troopers who had been sitting just a couple of booths away from us. And I, I feel certain that they, they heard every you know, word that we said while we were sitting there. And I wish I could find this a way to properly describe the, the, the faces of these guys as we walked out. Um, they, they, they just stopped eating and looked at us. And I, I swear, I don't know if the troopers like thought they should arrest Leonard or shake his hand. Um, ultimately, they let us go, which was cool. Anyway, the point of all this is right now, uh, in the middle of this part of the world and time in the world that we, we live in, Leonard Brown cannot leave his house to go to breakfast, which is probably the most uncommon thing in all of Greenville County. And, you know, like all of us, he's stuck at home and there's no one to pour him coffee and there's no one to make him a poached egg. So, you know, five weeks ago when I closed out murder, et cetera, I, I don't think that many of us expected that we would all being forced to stay away from everybody else uh, in our lives and everything and everywhere we go. And we've all been looking for something to do and some way to connect with each other. So I guess uh, until such point that uh, Leonard and the rest of us can start going out to breakfast again, um, I wasn't really sure what to do. And I, I seriously never planned to do anything like murder, et cetera, uh, in a format other than what I did it. But 
you know, we're, we're living in interesting times now. So I guess we're going to do it this way. I'm Brad Willis, and this is Murder, Etc. Live. I had no idea I would be hearing that song again uh, as soon as I am. Um, I love the song, actually. It, it makes me happy, but I did not expect to be playing it for anybody else again anytime soon. So, you know, the vast majority of our listeners have never heard me outside of an episode. I mean, there are some people who've seen me at live events and we've talked, but no one's ever heard me do an episode live because I've literally never done one. The last time I was live on anything actually was with a, a man who does a sports radio program down in the PD region of South Carolina named Chris. And Chris asked me to go on his show last week to talk about murder, et cetera, because he was a fan of the show. And at the same time, uh, he didn't have any sports to talk about because there are no sports right now, which is something that, you know, is crushing me as much as anybody else in the world. And so, you know, I'm going to warn you in advance here. I'm working out of, you know, what we call Fort Pillow or, you know, the, the home studios here. Um, and I'll tell the Fort Pillow story another day for those who don't know it. But uh, here I sit in Fort Pillow and at any given point, you could hear two gigantic dogs run through and start barking or you could hear someone swinging a baseball bat at something or it, it, Lord knows what could actually end up happening because we're live and there's no way I can control everything, which is a tough spot for me because I'm you know, I, I'm very particular about how everything sounds. And so I'm just going to roll with this. I know that the audio quality might not be exactly what I want, but at the same time, um, that's not the point of this. Um, because the other day I decided that I was going to try to use this time where I'm stuck outside of the rest of society, like all of you and try to get outside my comfort zone and do things I haven't done before. And and if I can help anybody in the process of doing that, just, you know, have something to do, you know, not necessarily help them, but just help them have something to do. That makes me uh, very happy. Uh, so, you know, I can tell you that I've spent this time that we're all in this quarantine doing a lot of things, uh, a lot of a lot of things that I wouldn't have done. And a lot of that time I've actually spent listening to musicians, you know, music, music is a gigantic part of my life. And I've been listening to these musicians I love who because they want to keep playing and want to do something too, they're doing live streams from their home. And listening to that music has helped me deal with this a lot. Uh, I have a couple of friends in Nashville who play on Broadway on a pretty regular basis. Uh, their names are Lauren Fitz and Scotty Castile. And they've been doing, doing like one or two shows a week on Facebook Live. Uh, there's a musician named Joe Middleton, uh, who's a member of Amateurs Etc. with Murder Etc. And I'll tell you, he's a hell of a songwriter. He's done a couple of shows on Facebook Live, too. Just before I started tonight, I was watching a musician named Amanda Shires and Jason Isbell. Um, they're a married couple who play in different bands, but they've been playing with each other in Amanda's band um, on a uh, webcast on YouTube called ISO Lounging that uh, has kept my entire family uh, and most of my friends, frankly, uh, really entertained. And they, they're playing it every night for three weeks. So between all of that and talking to some old friends and having family reunions on Zoom, I'm actually still pretty sane after all this, uh, or at least as sane as I was, you know, back in February when we stopped doing episodes. 
of course, literally just after I finished up the Amanda Shires and Jason Isbell podcast, I watched a friend of mine on Zoom try to eat 60 chicken McNuggets in an hour for a lot of money as part of this big bet. And uh, she did it, actually. She she ended up eating 63 in less than 50 minutes. So uh, maybe I'm not as sane as I think I was. But anyway, um, before I started doing all of those things, one of the last friends I actually saw in person before this started shutting down was a guy named Andy Etheridge. And he and I were at the Greenville County Sheriff's Office working on this project that we had some bigger plans for. And then everything went south, uh, you know, for everybody. And all of a sudden, we weren't allowed to get together and see each other and go out and do interviews and things like that. And um, nevertheless, since we had this opportunity to talk, um, we decided we wanted to tell you about it. And so joining me now here from the luxurious Etheridge estate in Greenville County, if I've made all the software work correctly, uh, should be Andy Etheridge. Andy, you there, bud? I'm here. There he is. You see, there's Andy Etheridge. Uh, he's, he's only five or six miles away, but uh, it seems like a world away uh, talking through the phone here. Um, so, Andy, just do me a favor. There's some people who may not have listened to all of the podcast or maybe not fully understand exactly how we're working. Would you just tell people who you are? Oh, well, you know, I was looking at these questions that you were going to throw at me. And honestly, that's like the hardest one because I get asked that. And I don't. Uh, I used to stumble around it, so I'm gonna try and zero in on it this time. Um, I started saying I'm an amateur historian with air quotes around amateur. That's and my favorite title ever. There's, there's no, there's no rel- like um, governing body to determine who and who is not a historian. So from here on out, I'm just going with historian. Um, I think so, that's fair. Uh, that's that's kind of with a with a specialization in um, the. South Carolina, the upstate, the Greenville area, and even a little more drilled down to that, the dark history. So um, it's always been a, a thing of mine to look at what uh, what other people don't want to look at so or don't want to talk about. And that's kind of what's brought me to um, this murder, et cetera, kind of dark world that we're in. It's it's amazing that we formed a, a decent kind of friendship, uh, you know, in the in a world that was as dark as the one we were living in, and still seem to. We can't really extricate ourselves from it. No, no. It's, uh, <laughs> so, all right, well, go ahead. You know, no, that's 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 pretty much it. I'm a I'm, I'm no expert on anything, but I know a little bit about a lot of things. So that's yeah. Great. Which is why you're, which is why you're valuable not only as a friend but as a researcher. So that's great. So back in back in episode 17, uh, which is you know what we started off the episode here with today, we talked about all the murders that were happening in Greenville County back in 1975. And as it turned out, there was one that you took a particular interest in that was you know bigger than some of the others of that year. And I, I wondered if you wouldn't mind telling people about that a little bit. Well, what drew my attention to? Um, Mr. X, as I've come to discuss or, or title this story, um, I started when all this is, is, is based around the Looper murders and Charles' story, and, it, and that's what started all of this. That's the essence of murder, et cetera. But um, I started with an idea. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start on January 1st and just start looking to see who was murdered, who else was murdered in January, where may connections be. And so I just started. And I went January 1st, 2nd, 3rd, 4th in 1975. And then here's the first one. Um, And it is a young black man's body found in a ditch. And early morning hours of of January uh, 
let's see, it was the 5th. No, the 4th is when they found him, fourth, in the morning of the 4th. So they grabbed me and unidentified. And when you're looking at a murder, you normally are, are looking for a name and you're researching the loopers. Or, well, with this, it's unidentified black man's body. Um, young black man's body. That, that's it. So um, that's what I had to work with, and that's how I stumbled upon it. And as I got to looking at it, it just kind of goes cold. Um, you see some newspaper articles, and then that's really all you got. So yeah, it really I became thought, the you know almost the the forgotten. I mean, in a year to where there were several big stories, it was among the most forgotten stories of 1975. It it's completely. Um, I mean, from what I could tell, there's there's no. There's no mention. There, there is. There's some some newspaper headlines early January through February, um, and then there's there's a there's a burial, um, and then that's that's pretty much it. It's not discussed. You won't find it on uh, the Doe Network. You won't find it on Greenville County's Unsolved Crimes. You you're not going to find it anywhere. Um, and that's that's kind of what led me to to looking. Um, and honestly, there wasn't much to find. So, I mean, you talked about, uh, you know, how you started looking and, you know, while we were working on murder, et cetera, and putting it all together, you at the same time, um, we're, we're doing some side research just because you're interested. And as you've told me, you can't focus on one thing at one time. So you do a bunch. Um, and eventually you got to the point to where you decided to file a freedom of information request about this with the Greenville County Sheriff's Office. And I'd like you to tell people what you ended up, you know, what that ended up being like for you as an experience. Well, it was an experience because it was the very first Freedom of Information Act request ever filed by anybody. It feels so good, so, doesn't it? It feels so good. <laughs> it was, it was uh, you know, you walked me through this, you got me the templates, and then here we go. You click the send button, and you just wait. It's almost like fishing. You know, you throw a you throw a hook out there, and you wonder if they're even going to bite and what you're going to get back, and then all of a sudden you, you get an email, and what do we got? And um, what came back was not much else. Um Working with the, the Greenville County Sheriff's Office and the um, the records division, they, they came back and finally they, she just picked up the phone back and forth with some emails. She's like, what are you looking for on this? Because we don't have much. Um, and I got an incident report um, that kind of tells the what, the what the first officers on the scene found. And you mix that with some newspaper articles, and that's pretty much what you got. Um, not much else. So... That that's started, not much to go on, really. It, it, there, there's, there's not much. This is a, this is a, a case with if you're, if you're interested in this, then you, you gotta, you gotta dig hard because there's not much there. So, you know, again, you know, it's not even been a couple of months since we realized, you know, we were just about ready to finish up the first season of murder, et cetera. And we realized the Greenville County Sheriff's Office had all of a sudden started working on this case again. And it was, I mean, I think it came as gigantic surprise to me. I woke up one morning and saw it on Facebook and I thought, wait a second, how in this, how did this happen? Um, but anyway, you and I got together and we got, you know, talked to the Sheriff's Office. And we got together with them and we, we just said, Hey, listen, what, you know, can we help or can we talk to you about in any way we might be able to help do something with this? And so just before this quarantine started, you and I got together with a cold, you know, a couple of cold case detectives. And we ended up talking primarily with a guy named Master Deputy Wayne Campbell. And I've got uh, just a little bit of that interview that I want to play for everybody who's listening. How'd you become aware of this case to begin with? Why is this that ended up on your radar? Well, it was one of the few that we had that was unidentified. Uh, trying to make an attempt to at least identify the victims. 
Uh, and he was one of the last ones that we had. When you went back to look at the file, what struck you or didn't strike you about what was there or what wasn't there? Well, there's not a lot in the file. As the case of the older cold cases, uh, the files are thin. So reading over it, um, it gives you some information, but it didn't tell you all the steps that they did during the investigation, such as a lot of the interviews. Give me just the circumstances of this person being found and what you know about that. For the case file on January 4th of 1975, uh, Hunter was out uh, off Highway 20 here in Greenville County, uh, down around Blakely Road, uh, basically found some items on fire, what he thought to be items. Turned out it was a body on fire on a dirt road. Uh, he calls law enforcement. When deputies arrive, uh, the body was still smoldering, and they finished exterminating the fire. Uh, this person had been wrapped in bed linens, what appeared to be bed linens, and doused with an accelerant and caught on fire. Uh, he was basically totally encased in these bed linens head, feet, and everything. So when they went to cut these bed linens off, um, they noticed that he had a belt around his neck on the outside of the bed linens, as well as one on the inside. So there was two belts around his neck. Uh, and once they started looking, of course, they realized it was a younger black male as a victim. As far as fingerprints, his hands per reports were that they were burnt to the knuckles. So there's no fingerprints left. So obviously someone was trying to do what's been successful for 45 years is to hide his identity. And I tell you, Andy, I mean, you and I have, you know, we've, we've known this story for a long time and we knew how bad it was, but just listening to some of the descriptions from Deputy Campbell and what was told there, uh, it was, it was sort of, it, it made, it made me more uncomfortable than I was when I went in to even talk to him about the story. It, it's, it's gruesome. I mean, that's, I'm sure that's the word that's going to come up um, over and over when in regards to this case. And, and it's, it's, it's hateful in a way. Now you don't know when you say hateful, um, we don't know, but I mean, the, it, Whoever did this was, was, you know, this wasn't just a, this was a hit. This wasn't, you know, this wasn't a, a 32 caliber behind the ear. This was, this was a killed man wrapped him in bed linens, two belts around his neck, one on the outside, one on the in, outside of the bed, bed linens, one on the inside and set him on fire. Um, burn away finger, you know, fingerprint evidence. So we don't know who he is. Um, and it's it's really it's it's, it's gruesome and it, and it's and it's uh, just, just mean. I mean, I someone is they're not just angry; they're out to send a message of some kind. And um, you know, you, you talk to people and you bring this up. And I, I've, I've talked about this with some different people just to get their perspective. When you first hear the story of you know this unidentified burning body by the side of a road down off you know Highway Twenty. Um, what's the first thought that comes to mind? And 40, 40 years later, um, even in law enforcement, I've talked to some people that said, well, that, that's got some racial overtones to it. And, 
you don't know. I mean, you're just working off the facts that you're given, but you can't help but stop and think, like, what is that? You know, this is a, an, an unidentified black male set on fire with uh, belts around his neck. Um, it's it's kind of, it leaves you, it leaves you wondering. Um, and I think that's what it, uh, this case in particular, you know, out of all the cases that were in 1975, you know, this one, it, it, it leaves so much to the imagination that you can end up thinking anything. And I, and I know that you and I both have done that. You know, we've, we've gone through everything from, you know, could this in any way be connected to the Looper case? Could this in any way have been a racial incident? Could this have just, could this have been a drug hit? Could this have just been some random weird thing? But when you have, you know, a belt around a guy's neck and then a bed linen around the outside and then a belt on the outside of that and a fire, I mean, but for, you know, a, a better accelerant, you know, we, we might not have ever known who this guy was or had a chance to, but we do. And as, as you know, and you know, I, I, what people maybe don't know yet, or some people don't know yet is that when the Greenville County Sheriff's office started discussing this and decided they wanted to reinvestigate it, they did something that was interesting and we'll talk more about it later, but they, they actually released an autopsy photo of, of this guy. And this, it was the first time as far as I know, since, you know, the man was alive, that anyone's actually seen his face. And that took us to a lot of different places. And so what I want to do is play a little bit more of the interview we had with uh, Deputy Campbell, where he talks about some of the wounds and things that were involved. Hold on. It's a laceration there um, on top of his forehead above his uh, nose. Uh, it could have been from any blunt object uh, that could have split his skin like that. Can't really tell, but it is a noticeable laceration, which would probably be a cut or tear of the skin. Well, uh, during the autopsy, he was deceased before the fire because when they uh, examined the lungs, there was no soot or any sign of fire in them. So the autopsy report says he was strangled or blunt force trauma about the head. So you've got that and then you've got a couple of statements from witnesses to various things which led to a criminal charge back a couple of years later. And honestly, you know, this is something that we'll discuss longer with the cops later, but this is where the story gets just a little bit weird. Um, and I think before I get into you know my part of the story, I think you might be able to help us understand a little bit as well. You know, those who don't know who Leonard Brown is, the man we heard you know at the top of the, the top of the episode and who I've talked about a lot, would you do me a favor and just explain to people who Leonard Brown is to the Greenville community? Yeah, um, Leonard Brown is basically. I was thinking about that today. Leonard Brown is. The closest we have, if you're taking a tour of this of this dark place of Greenville, 1975, he's the only living tour guide we have, really. You know, he's That's fantastic. He he, he can he can give you the lay of the land. He was a, a sheriff candidate, uh, 1974, I believe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he he ran a security business, security alarm business, one of the first in Greenville, and was new. Uh, knew had contacts with law enforcement with people that set off alarms and he 
put himself into the sheriff's race in a you know a crazy sheriff's race, and so he was kind of he he had all he had all all different sides of the of the um, of the puzzle so to speak, and he was also what he did was he had the foresight to know hey we're in the middle of some dark shit right here. There's a lot going on. Someone needs to take some notes, maybe make some recordings. Let's start trying to get a handle on all of this. And so what, 45 years later, he's one of the few resources we have where you can go back in and start trying to piece this together and what's going on, not just Mr. X, but the loopers and everything else. Um, so Leonard Brown is basically, it's, he's, a, he's a living resource from this time period. And he's that, he, is that, he has that role because of his involvement in, the, in running for sheriff, his involvement in you know, surveillance and, well, I say surveillance, but alarm systems. And so, and he also, being in this role, he was able to really kind of talk to both sides. He didn't wear a badge. Well, I believe he was actually a constable, to that, but um, he didn't wear a, you know, he, 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 didn't, he wasn't arresting people back then, but he was certainly asking questions. He was documenting the answers. And he really had his, his, his finger on the pulse back then. And luckily, you know, he still he's still with us today. So we've still got this resource available, but he could, he literally was talking to, you know, murderers and people wearing badges and drug dealers and everyone else um, throughout this period. And, you know, the memories of that, those conversations are still intact today. So that's when we, when you turn to Leonard, you're going to get the best, you know, first, first person narrative of this thing as you could possibly get. I think you're probably right. I mean, I go back and I try to think, here, here's just a quick story that I hadn't even planned on telling, but there was a point that I had actually reached out to Leonard Brown and uh, was trying to get in touch with him prior to starting the podcast. And I couldn't get in touch with him and I'd left a message and he didn't call back. And uh, I just decided to leave it at that because in my mind at the time, I mean, I didn't know everything about Leonard Brown. And I, I thought, well, you know, I guess I really don't need him for the podcast. And I sort of forgot about it. And then about, I don't know, three or four weeks before I started the, the podcast, the first episode back in 2019, I thought, I'm going to try one more time. And I happened to find this phone number uh, online that, you know, the, the way we research and I found it and I called it up and a guy answered and I said, hey, I'm looking for Leonard Brown. He says, you got him. And I said, is this the one that ran for sheriff? And he goes, no, this is his son. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. He goes, but I'm sitting right across from him. Where was he? He was sitting at breakfast. Of course he was sitting at breakfast. And uh, that was how I got to know both Leonard Brown and Leonard Brown Jr. And I felt really fortunate for that. But uh, anyway, before we you know move on too much, uh, about a week after I had that first breakfast, I sat down with Leonard for about three hours in his house with him and his son. And they started breaking out some of the tapes that we would eventually use in the podcast. And I listened to his stories. And you know, this was about a year before the Greenville County Sheriff's Office started started investigating this case again. And back then he told me this story that I never actually ended up using as part of the podcast production, because frankly, it just didn't seem relevant to everything that was going on in the story. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but what I do know is that he told me this long before we ever talked to the cops. Listen to this a little bit. That was Jack Anderson. He said he did that. Jack Anderson is a, a fixer for Bob and him. So he says after this killing, this is Jack telling me this. And I took him to the FBI and they talked to him about it. And Jack told him about killing that guy and wrapping him up in a blanket. He'd already told me about it. And I told him to tell them about it, you know. 
when after Luke and Bub had been indicted and was out on bond, I met with him and a, and a federal agent down in a motel in Greenville, and they questioned Jack about all his. He asked him, how many notches you got on your gun? <laughs> and he thought about it a little bit, and he said, oh, 20 or 21, you know. And he said, well, what'd you do with me? He said, well, some of them I buried them in a swamp down there in, in Piedmont somewhere. He put their bodies in a swamp down there. And he told him about wrapping that thing up in a blanket. He said he didn't have nothing to wrap him up, and he had him in the back of a pickup truck. And he went up to Bobby Taylor's house, and, and Bobby wasn't there, and he was going to get a blanket. His wife was there. And he said, bring me a blanket out here or something, you know, to cover this guy up with. She brings it out there, and he tells her he's going to kill her by God if she ever tells any damn body. He says he went up there to that service station and got several containers of charcoal lighter. And he put it all on him and put him on the side of the road and set him on fire. And he thought he'd be burned up before anybody come. But somebody come along, found him burning. And he said he, he chopped him with a hatchet. That's what he said. He hit him in the head with a hatchet, killed him. But he didn't say who he was. I don't remember what he said the reason was he killed him, but he said he hit him with a hatchet. He told the damn FBI man about it, all about it. Told him and me sitting there. and, and So that's just a little bit of uh, slightly poorly cut audio from that interview I did with uh, Leonard Brown back, I think it was in February of 2019. It was sometime around then. And at the time, it was one of these amazing stories that, frankly, I, I, I couldn't believe was true just because it was so graphic and it was so terrible. But at the same time, there was never any resolution to it in the news or in the courts or anywhere else. And so before we get on to that, just let's talk about the dynamics that were at play there. You've got Leonard Brown, who's not an elected official. He ran in 72 and 76, but he's talking to the FBI. He's taking people to the FBI instead of the sheriff's office in 1975. And then you've got this wickedly bad story from a reputed hitman who was apparently working for some people that we've already heard about. And, and I say hitman, reputed hitman, uh, I guess we probably need to double back just a little bit. Would you tell folks why Bub and Luke, and it, we, you know, Leonard mentioned there, that's Bub Skelton and Luke Cannon, why they are important to the story that we told in Murder, et cetera, and then why they would be important here? Bub and Luke, um, pretty much from, from what you can piece together, they, they ran things. Um, one of them, one of them did it, you know, uh, with a badge. The other one did it out of a used car lot. <laughs> but they um, they controlled uh, what was coming and going, what was what was getting stolen, what was getting sold, what was uh, kind of just the the, the underworld um, was. Those two guys come up uh, time and time again, um, and. Whatever when you when you talk to this, you have the the sense that these these guys can they can they can make things happen. They can they can make people be quiet. They can make people talk. They can make they can make things happen. And um, a, a fixer, I, now I don't I don't know for sure, but that, that Jack Anderson is is claims to be a fixer for Bob and Luke. Well, I mean, um, to the, my best knowledge, he's basically a guy or, or someone that would. You know, when things go wrong and you got somebody talking too much or you got somebody that maybe is a informant or maybe they're stealing, I don't know, but you got a you got a, uh, a messed up situation that needs fixing, 
You send in the fixer. Now, who knows? That could mean a dozen things. I don't know. I mean, murder either. I just know that at one point during the conversation with uh, with Leonard that day, and I didn't play the whole the full part of that conversation, but part of that conversation was he said that uh, had you know that at one point Bub and Luke and the boys had sent him down to Georgia to take care of some witnesses in a murder trial, and you know there were a lot of things, and I mean Leonard Brown associated Jack Anderson with you know three or four different members of either the Dawson gang or the Dixie Mafia folks that were involved uh, in the murder, et cetera, story. And uh, at the same time, he was at least a reputed hitman, according to Leonard, where, you know, he according you know, notches on his belt, 22 or 23. And, you know, but I, I guess the, one of the things that I wanted to mention here about this was that when Leonard mentioned the, the guy had been killed with a hatchet, you'd never read anything about that in the newspaper. No, nobody on the outside had ever seen any kind of reports or autopsy reports. So when the Greenville County Sheriff's Office posts this fairly graphic autopsy photo on Facebook back in February, the first thing I see when I see it is this wound on the guy's forehead. And I mean, you know, I'm, I'm no doctor. I'm no, I'm no forensic pathologist, but the wound there sure looked like a hatchet could have made it. Um, and I don't know how you feel about that, but that's, that's what it looked like to me. Um, regardless. It, yeah. I mean, I mean, no, tell me, no, first of all, tell me what you think. Well, there's, I've never heard the word hatchet. I've never heard the word Jack Anderson. I've never heard any of this until I, until, you know, you, you, you put me in touch with, with Leonard Brown and, and his son. And, and they knew that I was into this, this story for whatever reason. And, and we're at a dead end. I mean, if, to back up a little bit, as I'm looking at this thing, I got articles that say a, a, a man's missing. I got an incident report and that's it. it. The trail goes cold. The last piece of information that I have was he's buried under the name of Miss, Mr. X and like, uh, November, I think, of 75, and that's it. Now, after talking about this with Leonard Brown, and, you know, you hear about Jack Anderson, you, well, then you start looking and looking around a little more, and you start looking at Jack Anderson, and, that, and that's that's the only man arrested for it. He was arrested in 77 um, for the murder, and, you know, the two years after the murder, and, and uh, arrested for it, and there's a there's a headline in the paper, and that's it. But that's that's but but without that information, without that connection, and you wouldn't know anything. And, and Hatchet was the first thing I heard. And then when you see when you get the actual, um, you know, the picture they put out on Facebook, they actually the the picture went up first, and the next day it came out with a shield on it, so to speak, where it it gives you a warning. Click, be careful. Make sure you're about to see something pretty bad. If you want to see it, click here where it actually unveils the photo. And yeah, I was surprised the first time I saw it, too. I'd literally just woken up that morning, and I'm like, I'm looking at a guy that has what appears to be a hatchet wound at the top of his forehead on Facebook, um, which, you know, the same, you know, you can't you can't post a lot of things on Facebook these days, but at that point you could. And that, that's not to slam the Greenwood County Sheriff's Office at all because they were literally trying to do the best possible thing here, but it was pretty graphic. Um, real quick, I know that you've done quite a bit of research into trying to figure out what happened to Jack Anderson after the fact, after he was arrested for for this um what ended up happening to it best that we can tell jack anderson uh 
he was arrested and then and then that's it we don't we don't know um there's i don't there's not a trial he never went it never went to trial um according to people i've spoken with the investigating detective the homicide detective was george uh lomos 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 i believe lomos lomos he he was the and interestingly enough um February of 77 is when they arrested Jack Anderson. Um, actually, he had been in Florida for a couple of years. Uh, after between 75 and 77, he was working under a different alias. Um, it's amazing Randall. how many people from the stories we've reported, when they run, they run to Florida, right? It, I've got three at last count that during the mid-70s are bouncing between Florida and Greenville. And it, it's to me, it's the... There seems to be some sort of a, a pipeline of criminal activity between you know, that Florida and here. And but the upshot Jack was, was down there. Jack Anderson, despite being arrested, was never tried um, and uh, at, at no point ever convicted uh, or further implicated in the case, right? He was not. And uh, Loomis was he, – he passed away like um, – within a year of Jack's arrest. I don't know. I have, that's just pure speculation on my part. I, that something tells me that, Hey, the, the case might've gone away with, with him, but, um, I, I, we're, we're left wondering, you know, we don't know. Um, all right, well, it, let's do this real fast because I know that, you know, when you and I sat down with the, the, the cold case detectives back, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, we, we asked about Jack Anderson and, uh, and through no fault of their own, um, we, well, we were trying to find a way to discuss with them, uh, you know, about Jack Anderson. And frankly, they just didn't know that much. And so uh, I want to play a little bit of just that that part of the interview, because uh, I, I think it was pretty telling about, you know, just how much of a ghost Jack Anderson is. Uh, Jack Anderson basically was uh, his criminal history was basically minor stuff. I think one of the worst thing was weapons violation, you know, unlawful carry of a weapon, things like that. But it was nothing major. Well, hopefully, once we identify the unknown victim, we can look for a link between the victim and if there is one with Jack Anderson. Uh, and what would be that link? So right now, the main concern is identifying this body even after 45 years and find a family. Yeah, we, 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 we definitely should just remind people uh, that number one, Jack Anderson is now dead. And while he does still have family who live here, you know, in the upstate of South Carolina, he was, he was never convicted for this. He was not convicted of any serious crime. Um, despite what, you know, all the stories we have, uh, the, the man, you know, lived out the rest of his life without that happening. Um, you know, that said, I, I guess in terms of this being a criminal matter versus a missing persons case or an unidentified body, it's, I think right now, and, and this is what the, the sheriff's deputies told us as well, it's it's fairly impossible to even consider this as it relates to Jack Anderson, no matter how weird, you know, the, the story is um, and a criminal thing until such point that it's covered, you know, and in, investigated as an unidentified body. Um, and this is something that I know that you uh, took a great 
amount of interest in and filled me in on a lot. So you eventually found where Mr. Sounds like you might have jumped into a bathtub. I'm hoping you're okay. Um, explain, do, do me a favor and explain where you ended up finding Mr. X. Mr. X was in O'Neill uh, Potter's Field uh, near O'Neill, the old O'Neill prison camp. Uh, he's about four, three or four miles north of Greer. Um, there's a waste collection site there today. And I went there twice before I figured out where the um, where the cemetery actually is and the there's no headstones um it's just a, a field that they just pretty much have set uh, metal plates almost like license plates all down in the ground so they can just ride the mower over it and clear everything out and um because the he was buried there in november of 70 75 uh he was buried under the name mr x in this potter's field, and I, I found it, and I, I dug around on my hands and knees. There's actually two Mr. X's buried out there, um, and I found the one that we're discussing here um, in that potter's field. So it was it, it was kind of surreal just out there walking around and seeing the, the, the name. I'll tell you that I went out um, as part of a, <laughs> you know, as we're under quarantine, we're not allowed to see anybody or go anywhere or do anything. Uh, so... I went out with one of my sons last week and we just went for a drive up into the country and ended up up there. And I, you know, I found what you saw as well. I think the thing that probably bothered me more than anything while I was there was there are several unknown infants that were uh, buried up there. And as you said, you know, there's, there's no, there are very few headstones. There are a few, but very few. Um, But most of the people who were buried it's literally as if the marker they put down for them was whatever trash they had to scrap. And I know in one case, there was a case of an unknown infant that had been printed over a, a, a sign that would have been at summons court um, that was about to be scrapped. And uh, I don't know, it was, it was, it was sort of haunting to me to, me, to know that the vast majority of the people who are buried here are either unknown or just were too poor and indigent to have anybody to take care of them. It's a, it's a haunting place. There's no doubt about it. Um, I, you know, I was there looking for, for this particular grave, but there's a lot out there. And I I got to to looking a little bit more in the mid seventies, how a, how a body would come to be. And they actually took um, Mr. X and he was taken to Watkins Garrett funeral home here in town. And they, actually held the body i think for about six to seven months um over the which time anyone that could come in the, the newspaper they ran composite sketches of who this may be and if you wanted to you could come by the funeral home and then at the end of the day or at the at the end of this six to seven month period um i guess they officially decided that it's time to bury him and watkins garrett funeral home buried him in a you know in a pine box for and the the reimbursement of that was eighteen dollars 1975 is how much you got paid. $18. That's what the county paid. So um, it's, it's a haunting place. And and there's, there's there. Yeah. You walk around and you wonder to what magnitude um, this story in particular is of interest to me because how does, how does a a murder victim who's, you know, thrown in the ditch, set on fire and hit with a hatchet. um, 
how does this go unspoken for 45 years or, or how, you know, and, and then I went, when I walked into that cemetery, I'm like, how many other stories out here? How many other ghosts are? Yeah. And there's, uh, there's so here? many. And I, I, I guess to the credit of the Greenville County Sheriff's office right now, they, they're making a concerted effort to try to at least start this and identify identify who this Mr. X is, because as you've said many times, you know, this man doesn't have a name right now. And X is not a name. X is a letter. And so, uh, you know, we asked the cold case detectives what they were working on to in an effort to solve this. And so this is a little bit of what they said about that. You know, I know that you have a lot more tools today than they had back then. Um, what tools are available to you or what is available to you to try to figure out who this guy is? Well, the biggest thing is DNA, but then you're restricted or limited because this occurred in 75. And whether like there's enough viable DNA to use. Well, that's going to be for a lab to determine, but you got to think when it comes to something like CODIS, he wasn't alive long enough to even have his DNA anywhere, if you know what I'm saying. So it's not in a system where, like a fingerprint, uh, where you could do APHIS and say, hey, this was Wayne Campbell. It's not that way. But so we're having to use other resources to try to find it. You know, I've, I've heard of the stuff that they've started using recently, a lot more called familial DNA. Is that the type of thing that you, I know it's expensive, um, but is that the type of thing that you could, you could use or you'd be considered using? That's what we're looking at, but ultimately the identifying is going to be done by the coroner's office. Uh, we're working with them, trying to figure out the best way to handle this. So it's something that is in works right now, and we're working with the coroner's office. Is exhumation on the board as an option right now? It's a thought, yeah. And, you know, you, you never want to talk about digging up a body, uh, you know, and disturbing someone from, you know, their place of rest. But I, I think, you know, anyone who, regardless of what you believe, you know, there's, you know, whoever Mr. X was not at rest simply because no one knows he's dead. Um, I, I mentioned one thing in that uh, part of the interview that uh, probably needs a little bit of explanation for people who aren't familiar with it. And it's called familial DNA. And, you know, back during the OJ trial in the 90s, we all learned about what DNA is and how it can tie people to crimes. Yet when you have situations to where you don't know who a victim is or you don't know who a killer is, you you know, even 15 years ago, 10 years ago, you you know, a certain amount of DNA wasn't going to help you. But there's a lot of new technology and a lot of it has to do with a lot of the uh, 23andMe and other online databases where people are sending in their DNA to see, you know, what their lineage might be. Uh, where if you put all of those things together and you cross-reference a whole bunch of them, then you have a situation where you can start to figure out, if not who the people are, who their family members were. And I mean, there was, a, there was a case just recently to where they were trying to find an unknown victim from a cold case up in Ohio, and they found you know, many of that person's relatives you know, in the upstate of South Carolina. And Andy, and I know that you and I both listened to a podcast that we both loved, uh, called Bearbrook. Um, and I, I won't ramble on about it, but I, would you do me a favor and just explain to people why that was important? Bearbrook is it's a good podcast. Um, it's, ba it's 
a state park, and I can't. I think it's Maine. Is it Maine? And I think it's New Maine, Hampshire. Um, New Hampshire. Okay, and they um they found bodies in barrels in this remote state park, and I think a number of years went by, and they thought that they had kind of started this case, figure out, the, and they found additional barrels like ten years later. So I, I'm having trouble remembering exactly, but but it, they were all kids and. So you've got, you're wondering, are the kids connected? Are they related to each other? Is it a family? And all these different questions and mysteries. And through DNA, you could, you could, you could figure it out. Um, but the, to, to start that sort of process, there's got to be a certain amount of public outcry for, for these things to happen. Um, and in that case, it, there is. And it, it, I think it led, I mean, we've all four have been identified at this point now. Um, they ended up identifying the victims and eventually they ended up because of identifying the victims and they ended up identifying who they believed the killer to be, which after that many years and a story that had just rocked a, a small little town um, was, I mean, it was, it was beyond impressive. It was the type of thing that you think we've got a whole new science here that we can work with. And uh, from what I understand to just do one of these familial DNA tests you know, it can cost six, seven, eight grand to make that happen. But, you know, if, if you're, you know, if you're going all in on trying to find somebody or find, you know, find out who somebody is, it's one of those things that might, might be worth it. But, but in this case, you know, that, that's not necessarily where the Greenville County Sheriff's office is yet. Um, they've not reached that point because what they were hoping was to, uh, to use the power of social media to get this done. And, Obviously, you know, at this point that hasn't happened, but I, I, here's just a little bit of what they said about what their early efforts were by putting the autopsy picture on Facebook and trying to reach out to social media. You know, I, I think you folks took a you know, fairly extraordinary step of, you know, using social media and putting out, you know, the, the one photo you had, which was, was graphic, but also the difference between that photo and the sketch that they had was, you know, I mean, clearly if you, if you knew the guy, you're going to be able to say, I knew the guy. Um, what, Results did you get out of that? Anything? Nothing that I'm aware of. Just, I guess in, in these days of social media, it's like one of these things to where I, you know, it, you know, it spread pretty quickly across social media that was out there. But it's amazing that like even that didn't turn up in you know, one call. No, but if you read the comments, there are people telling us what to do and how to solve it. <laughs> so <laughs> if, you, if you look at the, you know, if you look at the comments, so I mean, but we're doing a lot of different things. Uh, we put, He's on NamUs and various other organizations out here uh, are very much aware of him. Uh, so, I mean, we're trying to do what we can before exhuming a body, trying to re-interview some people uh, that are in the notes that we have, the case notes. Uh, we were hoping that social media would have turned something up, some type of lead, but it hasn't. And I think that's what was really frustrating for them because, you know, social media can be a really powerful tool to people who you know use it, whether you're an investigator or you're trying to raise money or whatever else, but it doesn't happen. So these guys that we spoke to, Andy, they, it's not as if, you know, they're on, you know, a, a, while they're on a lot of quests for things that might be almost impossible, it's not always impossible. And I know that one of the things that 
we talked about with them was some of the recent successes they've had. And, you know, the Greenville Police Department, not the sheriff's office, but the police department had had a lot of success recently with solving some really big uh, old cold cases. Uh, but one of the ones that both the Greenville County Police, uh, Greenville County Sheriff's Office and Greenville Police Department had solved um, was one uh, involved with the Julie Valentine case. And, you know, Julie Valentine, that was the name given to a, an infant found back in the early 90s, uh, after whom they named a, a center for uh, survivors of child abuse and sexual abuse. Um, but what can you tell us what you remember about the, that whole Julie Valentine case? I was 10 years old, I think, I don't, when, when they actually found um, the infant's body off of Verde Boulevard. Um, I don't remember that, but, the, but I do remember just years back, and you heard the name Julie Valentine. And honestly, I heard the name. It was out there with the center and everything else, but you didn't really know what it was. And then I think it was in the last year. They had, through DNA, um, they identified the infant's father, and a belief and then you could trace that identity back to the mother and she was eventually arrested and and she did she she abandoned this you know infant infant little girl um in a field above verde i mean it's just it's a heartbreaking story um but i think it was one that you know in touch the entire community i mean that this the center that was named for her you know helps a lot of people who are really in need and but that's how the vast majority of the people who live here knew it they just knew it as the julie valentine center and not knew didn't know the whole backstory so part of this you know in speaking with wayne campbell and the people of the greenville county sheriff's office was having them explain to us what kind of success they have. And in this case, you know, it was with DNA and familial DNA and things like that. So, you know, this is a, a little bit longer clip that will go on for just a little bit, but uh, I think it's worth noting that it's not always a lost cause. So listen to this. Yeah, this is a lot different than solving a murder that happened last night or solving a missing person from somebody that went missing just, you know, a few days ago. Um, it takes a special kind of person to do what you do. Your job's hard. Well, it goes back to talking to people. Uh, this day and age, it's become more common. When people have information, they will not come to us. If you don't knock on their door and don't ask the right question, they'll never come forward. So having that go out here and try to knock on doors of individuals who are in the case file that may have some knowledge uh, back in 75, they might not talk, but in 2020, they may talk. I've been doing cold cases for full-time for about a year now. Uh, before that, I was doing it off and on for probably about two years. And before that, I worked about 10 years in homicide. In some respects, it's easier because if I interviewed you several years ago and I come back and talk to you again, can you remember what you told the original investigator? So most of the time people can't. So when you talk with them, you're getting possibly a different story that you can go back. And if it was documented well the first time, you can see the irregularities or they're saying the same thing. So, I mean, you can see, and what you're looking for is the irregularities. You know, like I say, I interviewed you five years ago, and then I interviewed you today, and you tell me something, the same thing. Well, guess what? It's probably the truth. 
But if it's totally different or a key point is different, then that's what you got to pick up on. So in some respects, it's easier in these cases that are 45 years old. Mr. X, is, they say, is between 22 and 26 years old. So 45 years ago, let's just make him 20. You're talking about he would have been 65. So you can pretty much bet his parents are probably deceased. So putting the picture out, they you figure they say 20 years, uh, you're looking at 85, 90 years old. So, I mean, but that's just part of it. Have you worked on any other cold cases here that I would be? I've worked for Channel 4 for years doing um, the beat over here. So I'm familiar with a lot of the cases from back then. But what, what are some of the other cases you've worked on and whether you've had success or not, Adam? What have you done? Well, one of the other uh, unknown uh, individuals, I will say this, uh, working with the city of Greenville, we became very lucky uh, with and that was Julie Valentine's older brother. Uh, we had an unknown uh, infant that was located in 1989. Well, when the city started working the Julie Valentine case again, uh, they used DNA to identify mom and dad. A rumor was that there was at least one other child that she had done this to. So, Myself and another investigator talking with the city who was doing their investigation, we sort of like, when I started talking to her, asking her advice of what steps to do, her mouth basically fell open and basically said, maybe that rumor's true. And it was. So Julie Valentine had a brother that was a year older. And it was treated very much like Julie Valentine. Uh, I mean, it was disposed of out in like a trash, trashy area, you know? So, I mean, the similarities were eerily similar. The rumor was that there was another child or children she had done this with and come to find out that was indeed through DNA, they were the parents. And, you know, I, I tell you, Andy, like, it wasn't a story that I was gigantically familiar with when we started working on it, but uh, I, I know that both for the GPD and the Greenville County Sheriff's Office, that was a, a major uh, a major case that they felt very strongly about solving. And you know, it might have taken them almost thirty years to do, but they did. Um, so it shows that there can be some success if you just keep working at it. And you know, I know for you. Ultimately, the story of Mr. X is less about solving it as a criminal matter and more about solving it as an unidentified body. And I wonder if you might tell people about that a little bit. When I first saw it, and, and I think it was just knowledge of the case, um, I wondered to myself, why why don't we know this story? Why have you not heard this? Um, you know, I'm sure everyone listening here is just like me and just like you. They're really into, they probably watch Unsolved Mysteries. You know, I did when I was a kid. You know, it's, and we're into that true crime, you know, unsolved stuff. And 
And this was something you, you, no one had heard about it. I mean, you had a conversation early on and I was like, nah, you know, we really need to, to, I wonder if anyone else is, is, is looking into this Mr. X and you look and you said to me, like, I can guarantee you no one's looking into Mr. X because they weren't no one, you know, no. And for me, it became a, and a, a really a question in my mind, what leads one, you know, John Doe, Jane Doe, Julie Valentine, Mr. X, what makes the story stay a story? Um, in the case of a, an infant and the Julie Valentine, that was recently a, um, the or- Ori County little boy blue. I think they recently solved that. And it, it, there's a public outcry when it comes to children and, and, and a child killer, especially a, an infant killer I, that it, it's, it's, you can't even begin to think how, 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 you know, evil this is. And you, and you know that the person, if they just left them there, then they're out there. They're, they're walking around amongst us. So those cases, certainly they've got a, they've got a public outcry. They've got it. But outside of the children cases, what is it that drives these cases? And um, there's another interesting case, you know, if you, if you really want to get into some rabbit holes and some Reddit threads that the Sumter County does are from the same time period. Um, they're, they're, they're well known. There's been unsolved mysteries about that. And so to kind of get back, this is, I wonder to myself, what makes someone care about a, an unknown person? What, what makes you want to give that person back their name? And cause that's what it is with the children is, is justice. But after a, a period of time, it, it, it becomes, let's just figure out who this person, this is someone's um, brother, father. This, this is someone is wondering where their loved one is. And that's, that's what I wondered to myself. What, what leads this? Um, is there a criminal element? You got a hatchet murder, burning. You got, you got this stuff that's to it. But then at the end of the day, it's, this is, this is a, this is a man that, Someone out there, a loved one, is wondering. Maybe, maybe they're sitting there wondering. I, I always heard my dad ran off, and, and you know, around uh, Christmas time of seventy four, seventy five, and he just ran off. Well, maybe he didn't run off. Maybe he went to Greenville, South Carolina, and was and was murdered. Um, and it's, and it's that's a really, it's, that's a good way of putting it. Uh, I I actually hadn't thought of it that way until you just said it. And I think for a lot of people, you know, because. You can go online and find, you know, thousands of people who you know, are, are either unidentified or missing. Uh, you know, this case is one that doesn't necessarily resonate in a way that uh, it fits either the social media profile or the, 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 the local news profile or whatever else. And but so I, I guess that's what, I, what I'm saying is that the fact that the Greenville County Sheriff's Office decided to try to work on this right now on what almost seems like a lost cause, but maybe isn't, uh, meant something to both of us. And I know that, you know, you said at one point that, you know, as much as the podcast has done very well and people have enjoyed listening to it, that you wanted to reach other people. And so, you know, it was your idea. We need to produce a video. And so what we're doing, and hopefully by the end of this week, it will be out. We'll have a video about this particular case that will be on YouTube and be on Facebook and be on our website and everything like that. And so people can see the things that we've seen and know the things that we know and 
hopefully get in touch with it. But I know that the sheriff's office isn't going to stop working on it until such point that they just can't get any farther. Um, and this is a little bit more of what they said about just the efforts that they're going to put in. It's going to be an open case until we can figure out for sure who committed it. Uh, if it was Mr. Anderson, then it'll be cleared out as such. Uh, if it was not him, then we need to look at that. We can't just focus on him. Certainly, he's an avenue you got to look at the connections. But once you find the victim on a homicide of today, if we don't know the victim, then that's the big priority is finding that out because that's going to tell you a lot. Friends, family, what you know, who their associates are. So hopefully, once we figure out who he is, we can touch the right person, ask the right question, and get the answer we're looking for. And Andy, obviously, there are people who are listening tonight who, you know, just like most people, in, you know, in the world, don't know anything about Mr. X or, frankly, had cared at this point because, you know, they, you know, they listened to murder, et cetera, because they wanted to know about Charles Wakefield or they wanted to know about Frank Looper and Rufus Looper. Uh, we have nothing to connect these two cases. We, we just simply don't. Um, and the simple fact is, since we don't know who Mr. X is, though, we have no way of knowing if they were connected or not. Uh, but there was something in one of the first newspaper articles that made us question, could they be connected? And I wondered if you wouldn't mind telling people about that. Well, the very first news article, it, it speculates. Um, this The police, or according to... Um, it, people within law enforcement, this is narcotics related, but also in, in our interview with the two cold case guys, they, they acknowledge that when you got a, a strange case like this, ultimately it's uh, defaults to narcotics a lot of times. Um, and, but the narcotic, the look of it, to me, it, 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 it does it to me, it's, it's racially motivated or it's narcotics. motivated. This, this is, this isn't some, um, you know, barroom brawl gone bad. This is this is this is something almost like some some cartel type shit. You know, I mean, these this is this is pretty dark. And from a tying it back to murder, etc. If 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 we knew where he was from, and the room the rumors are that he was from Atlanta, um, then maybe we know. Maybe we know if it was narcotics related. Um, you know, was, was Looper notified that to me, there's, the there point. is no, we're, we're all just speculating here. But well, yeah, I mean, I, it's, all, it's all speculation, but at the same time, yeah. you know, if there's this man who, you know, if it was declared at the time to be an narcotics assassination and it happened, you know, less than four weeks before Frank Looper was killed and Frank Looper was the chief narcotics investigator for that particular county. It, it, you know, it, it at least makes you want to ask the question, was it involved? And I, at the same, you know, you never want to just try to tie things together because that's what people accuse the media of doing is that, you know, you try to, you try to sensationalize and make things bigger than they are. And it very well may be that they're not in any way connected, but that doesn't mean that this case isn't also important because there's a man out there who still doesn't have his name. And that's something that you have impressed upon me, you know, at least a hundred different times. And I appreciate you for doing it. Um, be before we finish up, because we've, we've gone on for a little more than an hour here, but I, there was a side note to the story that I wanted to talk about that was 
just as tragic as the Mr. X story, if not maybe a little more so. In the fall of the year, of that same year, people started finding bodies of women or, or young women in the Reedy River in Greenville and just south of it. Um, and that ended up, ended up somehow connecting to this, although in a weird tangential way. And I wondered if you wouldn't mind telling the story that you know about that. Yeah, it's it's another it's it's a, another evil story, but it's not one left with mystery. Um, there was a lot of mystery early on. It was three young ladies uh, were found in the Reedy River, about fourteen miles south of town, in summer of seventy-five, I believe. It might have <laughs> it started and, happening in October, but yeah, it's about that. Yeah, no, you're you're up. Just October seventeenth, eighteenth, it was a two-day span. They found three bodies. And turned out it was a guy named Goldie Williams, um, who is just a cold-blooded murderer. No, there's no glamour to it. That's him. He was a, a car mechanic by day and a, and a wannabe pimp by night. Um, and he drugged these girls, overdosed them, shaved their heads, threw them into the Reedy River. And they, they went downstream, were found um, later on. And one of the young ladies um, was actually um, ad- supposedly identified um, through clothing in a ring, and the family was notified they had a funeral. They buried her, uh, and I don't want to, you know, I'm, I don't want to give names because I don't think these they don't need to be out there. But um, this young lady was actually misidentified um, the, because about ten days, I think it was ten days after. Her funeral, she came walking up back to her house. And so they had a misidentified body um, that in turn was buried in a potter's field alongside Mr. X under the name Miss X. And turns out that that actually was identified later on as well. So all three. It was, it was, you know, Mr. X and Miss X, you know, within the same year and. I, I don't know. That's to me, and you were the one that revealed that to me. I, I, it still shocks me that that kind of thing was happening all within just one year in a county. And I, yeah, I don't know. It, it I won't say that I'm uh, shocked necessarily by it anymore. But it's also in, in this day and age, it's one of those things that you just wouldn't expect. Um, Andy, if there's anything that you could ask people, because I know that this is a case that you care a great deal about. Um, anyone who might listen to this either is listening live tonight or listening uh, in a recorded version later, uh, what would you have them do? Share the picture. Um, and maybe not And on our website, or on, we'll put out the, the composite sketch. It's not quite as gruesome. Um, but the first step is identifying um, who this person is and establishing if you if, if it can be done through social media and a you know a couple hundred sharings of a post, then certainly it's much easier and more doable than having to zoom a body. Um, but once that's established, um, you notify the family. Maybe this all goes away. Maybe we don't hear anything. I, you know, I did talk with the the Doe Network lady in this, and she said, well, sometimes. Um, sometimes the family does step up and, you know, claims the person, but then wants the story not, wants nothing more to be done about it. 
Um, but that hasn't happened in this case because, you know, if that were to happen, law enforcement would be notified. And this would all just kind of go away. We'd quit talking about it. It would vanish. And that would be the family's wishes. But until that time, um, it's best to establish some some identity, try and, try and figure out who this is, where they're from. I don't believe they're from the he was from the Greenville area. Um, it's just it wasn't that big of a town back then. And but who knows? So that's the best thing to do is share the picture, um, try and get the story out there. See, see if we can give this young man his identity back because you know he maybe maybe he wasn't tied into a drug trade. Maybe he it was just a gruesome murder and he, he lost his life, and you know someone has to pay for it. Um, I, there's no idea that. that Jack Anderson to me is almost it's a it's a it's a crazy story, but who knows? Um, I, if it was obviously there's some reason why I never went to trial. So maybe Jack Anderson didn't do it. Doesn't doesn't to me personally it doesn't really matter. To me the the story is that giving a man back his name. I think any man deserves to be buried with his name, um, if possible, and just trying to make the efforts to do that is what. I'm trying to do. And I appreciate your efforts, not only just tonight, but uh, overall throughout the course of the podcast and, uh, you know, helping push me along, uh, along the way, uh, both with the murder, et cetera, story and this, and uh, you've been not only a great friend, but uh, a great researcher and you've done both of these stories very well. So thanks for being with me tonight on this, maybe first, maybe last, maybe uh, just first of many uh, live podcasts while we're on quarantine, but thanks for doing that. I enjoyed it, man. I appreciate you uh, helping me out on this one. All right, man. Thanks, Andy. I appreciate you. All right. Thanks, buddy. All right. That is uh, amateur historian Andy Etheridge there. Um, And if we do continue to stay locked up and this live episode wasn't just a total disaster, and I'll figure that out later, uh, we'll probably hear Andy on here again just because he has several fun projects he's been working on on his own. And fun is probably not the right word for it, but they're all very interesting and they could all make for a very good podcast. Um, You know, as for when we can get out, you know, and get new interviews and start working on, you know, the murder, et cetera, Charles Wakefield story or a new one. Nobody really knows right now. We could all be stuck at home for a a very long time still. And while I've got a lot of ideas on where to go with this and stories to tell, uh, I, I I still don't know exactly when I'm going to be out, be able to get out and work on them. Um, so in the meantime, I have a lot of good stories that I've been working on on the side and things that could make for good discussions and people I could talk to. And, you know, Podbean, uh, if you're listening, you know, live right now, those of you who are, you know that there's a there's a text chat that goes on with it. There's a way to call in and actually do calls so we could do some Q&As and you could ask questions about the first season. Uh, so do me a favor, stay looking at our Facebook page, our Twitter page, the website, which is murderetcpodcast.com. And we'll give you future updates. We'll also post the pictures that we talked about tonight, the incident reports, and a bunch of links as well uh, later, if not, probably not tonight, but within the next few days. And let me know what you thought, you know, of this live format. It's, it's not what I set out to produce, but it's a way that I was able to connect with some people I know that care about stories that I care about. And it was a way for me to talk to Andy, who I haven't actually, you know, been able to talk to very much in the last few weeks. So, um, but I will tell you this, I, I'm going to do at least one more of these, at least one more of these live podcasts, because 
I just had a good, long and fairly candid discussion with Frank Epps Jr. And if you know that name, that's because he is the son of the trial judge in the Charles Wakefield trial. And that discussion is going to be the subject of the next episode of the podcast. And, you know, along the way of season one running out, Frank Epps Jr. started having people come up to him and telling them that they were concerned. I had a couple of people call and say, they're acting like your daddy was in on something. And I said, well, they're entitled to believe what they want to believe. I, you know, I don't think daddy was in on anything. I Honestly, the one thing I am 100% certain of is my father did not know anything more about the death of Detective Looper and his father than anybody else. Because, Lord have mercy, my daddy would tell me about anything. And uh, we, he and I talked about it a lot, and I speculated about it a lot. I'm 100% certain that he didn't know anything about it, and I'm, I'm likewise certain that he had no conversations with the prosecution or the defense more than he normally would about that case during the trial. You know, that's what was interesting to me over the course of this. And you know that I was doing as much of the research as I could. And, you know, I, if I if something came up and I needed to confirm it with you or confirm it with anybody else, I would. But in this particular you know case, people would come to me and it's like you said, you know, you know, it sounds like the judge was in on it or the judge was crooked or the judge was crooked. And I said, you bring me evidence the judge was crooked. We'll talk about it. But no one ever could. And I feel like that was sort of part of your dad's mystique over the years. Um, like how did I mean, I know that we've talked about that, but talk to me a little bit more just about, you know, what kind of reputation he had and how he earned it. So Frank Epps Jr.'s answer to that will be coming up the next time we do a murder, et cetera, live. And, uh, you know, again, he, like the rest of us, was in quarantine. You know, he's locked down. He was in his office, which, by the way, is one of the most amazing places. It's like a museum in itself. Um, but we had, we had a good long discussion that uh, I think people will find interesting, at least in terms of the murder, et cetera, discussion, and just about uh, a judge that was a, a very uncommon judge uh, in every way as we consider them now. Um, so anyway, thanks of those of you who logged on tonight and listened. There were a lot more of you than I thought that there would be. So thank you for listening tonight. Um, you know, the plan is to take a recording of this episode and publish it like I would a normal episode on the feed um, within the next couple of days. And again, as I said, I'm going to put some show notes with pictures and documents and links to the musicians that I discussed earlier. Um, again, those are Lauren Fitz and Scotty Castile, Joe Middleton, Jason Isbell, Amanda Shires. These are the people who are doing the live streams that are keeping me sane right now. So, um, you know, I'm I'm, I'm trying to do at least for a few of you or whoever wants to listen, the same thing those folks are doing for me because it's really keeping me sane when I would rather be out doing something else right now. So for everyone else, in the meantime, try to stay healthy and sane, be good to each other, and just look forward to a time we can all get out and enjoy the world again. Um, and as I close it out tonight, I wasn't sure if I was going to do this, but I think I'm going to. Uh, as I told you earlier, I've been doing things outside of my comfort zone while I'm stuck at home. And this live podcast was one of those things because this isn't something that I do. Uh, I, 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 you know, I did live television for a while, but I wasn't ever very comfortable with it. And I certainly never did it for what is now an hour and 20 minutes. And I've done some other things that make me uncomfortable, but this is, you know, way outside of my comfort zone. Earlier this week, uh, I 
did something like that as well. Um, last week, my family had a couple of rough days and I spent a little bit of time on one of those days thinking about what it means to be alive right now and in this world that we're living in and what it means to be strong and certainly what it means to be grateful for what we have. Um, and I ended up writing a song that I hope both of my sons uh, will listen to later in their life and understand what I was meaning at the time. And then I have a cousin who lives in town with me now who uh, put some electric guitar behind it and some percussion behind it. And I, though I never would ever release anything like this before. I mean, some of you know that I composed and performed all the music in Murder, et cetera, but with one very sneaky exception, I didn't sing in any of them. Um, so anyway, in the spirit of trying to make at least one other pe person out there feel a little bit better about what we're all doing right now, um, here's my other comfort zone stretcher. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll be back soon with another episode of Murder, Etc. live. This is only take three. Probably. The red bird on the window singing his song Too blind and deaf to know he don't belong Wasting his tune About a world that we can't see Singing his song Into air that we can't breathe But there ain't a time That bird's not gonna sing There ain't a time Your phone's not gonna ring there ain't a time our worries are done. There ain't a time, there ain't a time, son. And that's why there ain't no time to waste for anyone you can replace. Ain't no time to sit still. The same time, this ain't a time. Blackbird on a wire. Around his toes, sweat on your neck about what he must know. He knows your face, he might know your name, but worst of all, he knows the rules of the game. He knows that there ain't a time when he won't scare you to death. There ain't a time you won't scream to catch your breath. There ain't a time you doubt that he has won. There ain't a time, there ain't a time, son. That's why 
There ain't no time to waste For anyone you can replace There ain't no time to sit still This ain't a time This ain't a time Yellow bird in the cage Singing loud Singing safe Singing proud Saving you Probably saving me Saving us all from What we can't see But there's a time she will not say There's a time she lose her little way You follow the yellow bird Cause she's the one who knows Just keep singing Until you go Cause there ain't no time to waste Anyone you can replace This ain't no time to sit still This ain't no time This ain't no time This ain't no time This ain't no time That's the first time I did it. <laughs>